the Orion spacecraft with Dustin Neal. You're listening to SpexCast. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. Here in the studio today, we have me, Phil, TJ. Hello. Chris. Hi. And Dustin Neal, an engineer with Lockheed Martin, who's worked on the Orion spacecraft for almost a decade. Hey, Dustin, how are you doing today? Doing good. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got involved in space, and then talk about Orion. Sounds good. Basically, starting out, um, got my uh, bachelor's of aeronautical and astronautical engineering back in 2007 from the Ohio State University. Also got a minor in physics at that point in time. And then, you know, once I started working for Lockheed Martin on the Orion program, I got two masters. And so in 2012, got my uh, master's in uh, mechatronic systems engineering. Um, obviously, a systems engineering degree combines mechanical, electrical, and computer engineering. And then I got my MBA, finished that up just last year with, with a concentration in management of technology from UHC locally here. Um, yeah, finished that up last year. So again, been on the program since 2007, straight out of college. And so it's been quite an exciting journey. The other things that you can see on my bio, last fall, I was nominated and selected as the Orion Employee of the Month. So pretty, pretty cool when there's, you know, thousands of us engineers and support staff working on this large complex space program. So that was a pretty cool honor. And basically what I've been doing is, you know, performing the design and systems integration project engineering tasks for the landing recovery systems. So LRS, we love our acronyms here at NASA. And so that subsystem for over nine plus years, I've been working on that on America's next manned spacecraft, the first interplanetary manned spacecraft, which is the point I always like doing in these things because that's never been done before. So obviously we're building something and we'll get to your guys' questions later. It's like, oh, you know, it looks like Apollo. Well, it's Apollo on steroids. It's something we've always talked about when we talk to the public about this, but it's so much more when you dig down into the deeper details of the design. Basically, I've been doing that as an overview for the past nine years. Again, design, systems integration. But over the past three years, I've been the project lead for the Qual PTV parachute compartment. So that was a really exciting opportunity that came up three years ago. Prior to that, what we call Dev PTV, Development Parachute Test Vehicle, I was the primary designer and did a whole bunch of design and procurement and, and assembly and everything else associated with it. Now I got to lead a team of 10 designers, analysts, respectively, to design, develop, produce, fabricate, and, and basically assemble this next test article, which is critical to uh, NASA's drop test program which is going to be a series of eight drop tests starting from this year, coming up this month, going out again for two years for this series of eight drop tests. So we drop, and, on, and that's what I kind of indicate down here too, we do these drop tests at a NASA a facility out in Yuma, basically in the desert. The Army has a test range, which is huge. They give us a little drop zone, like one mile by seven. Got your drop zone, the plane goes over two cold passes, then hot pass, and then drops your aircraft, you're only drop, you're dropping air, it doesn't go to, up to space, obviously. You're still dropping 35,000 feet, which is, you know, commercial airliner altitude, so pretty cool. It's on, like, this sled-looking thing, what we call the CPSS, and then it detaches from that, and this is, there's a bunch of parachutes, like, I think, like, 11 programmers that just get you into the test configuration. So you're, our test of our, you know, actual development engineering that mimics the flight vehicle doesn't even start until those actually get into the right attitude altitude. And so that occurs seven miles up. And in every drop test, you know, we're trying to test different things, right? It's not the same for all the drop tests. And then everything deploys, 
all of our parachutes, mortars, and then once everything is landed, you got to wait for everything to descend. And then you have the recovery teams, team A through Z, that goes and recovers their particular object. That's really, really interesting. And congratulations on being uh, the Orion Employee of the Month. Um, quick question about the Orion program. Do you know how many uh, engineers are working on it currently, uh, ballpark? There's thousands of us, but I mean, if you go down to subcontractors and they got the suppliers, I mean, you're, you're talking tens of thousands of people when you get down to everyone that has, you know, even down to the nuts and bolts of stuff that are contributing some kind of effort or support function into said spacecraft. And then you've got even just my relatively small project that spins off into, you know, a bunch of different vendors and suppliers. And so there's a lot of impact. So, I mean, directly, there's a couple hundred of us here, Denver as a bunch. I mean, we're all over the nation. You know, and then you factor in, you know, the NASA civil servants. And so you've got thousands of engineers and scientists working on Orion. But before we move on, you talked a lot about um, the, the landing and recovery system, like all the parachutes and things. What else is there for the, for the landing uh, and reentry system? So where we kind of take over is like 35,000 feet, right? We have entry interface. The heat shield is, you know, doing its job. It slows us down from 20,000 to like a couple hundred miles per hour, right? That's when the four recover jettisons, we got parachutes in conjunction with mechanisms, which has the three thrusters that are pyro-initiated, you know, three rods that push this mm -hmm. cover off, and then the parachutes that then pull it away as quickly as possible so it doesn't, you know, have near-field contact and stuff like that. And then you immediately, pretty soon after, have the drogue parachutes come out. And actually, one thing I should mention about the drogue parachutes, so those are actually staggered, because you actually will, that, those are big, I mean, they're this big around, and you got two of them. So we actually found out a benefit to, uh, structurally, to not to fire those at the same time, so maybe a little known fact. But uh, so then you are ready to cut those. You're at a particular you know altitude, and so then you cut those and you immediately fire the pilot parachutes. So those are the parachutes that pull up the big parachutes. The drogue chutes um, are just kind of like the the pre-breaking, just to kind of like get things under control. Yes. And then there are extra parachutes that would fire small ones that would pull out the main ones from from their compartment. Yes. Is that correct? correct? Within about a second. From the four bay. And these things weigh about 350 pounds. They're bigger than this portion of the table you can see here in terms of their footprint, you know, packed to like, what is it, something like 40 pounds per square inch. So, I mean, there's a whole effort of just even getting those things together, packed in their configuration, and then actually integrated into the parish compartment. But, you know, what everyone else gets to see is just it being deployed. And like I said, deployed quite quickly by the pilot parachutes. And then those unfurl, and there's like three different reefing stages, I think like two and a half, eight percent, and then full open. So there's different percentages, for lack of a better word, you know, because you don't want to blow out the gores that are all sewn together, right? You know, if you just went full open, you're going 108 miles an hour, all those parachutes are probably going to shred. So you, get, you have to stagger them, and we have reefing line cutters, and they en enable that reefing process to occur when it's supposed to occur. And then you will ultimately descend on nominal day, about, was it 30 feet per second, about 20 miles per hour vertically. So that's that's what we've deemed as, you know, meeting our landing requirements. And so, and, and that's, I think, one of your questions, we can get to that later. You said, you know, one of the changes that occurred, well, land landing versus water landing, that occurred, you know, early in the program, that change. And so we've been doing water landing for quite a long time now. Um, one thing that I, I think is kind of cool about the parachutes, you mentioned that they are packed really tightly into the spacecraft. Um, I've actually seen parachutes packed for um, fighter aircraft and you know you can you can like knock on it it's and it, solid. It's, they're solid, very so, solid. And if you've seen like the pneumatic little presses that they've got, these little flat plates, mm -hmm. and they keep pressing, and they, there's a certain like fold pattern and, and everything. And if you've seen the long tables, if you've seen the process, 
got these long cables and then these uh, railing systems up overhead that then, you know, you bring it in and then you pack it in and they've got little PSI gauges and stuff and they're just, you know, packing it all in layer by layer. And so it's pretty amazing, you know, you know, just all the history behind that. There's a particular, you know, it's kind of an art and a science to doing that. Um, and then what's really even impressive beyond that is when you see the guys actually come out and then basically think of like the world's most complicated shoe lace and then it's all zipped in there in the Ford Bay. And uh, it's pretty impressive. They got like 20 page drawings, knots that you've never even heard of. And so it's, you know, it's amazing watching those guys work. And the Yuma hangar <laughs> for our drop test and then obviously at KSC when they're doing the flight vehicle. It's pretty impressive. So, hey, you guys are, that's something that you guys are interested in. There's, there's people that do that and do it very well. And you mentioned the the actual landing sequence. Uh, I know capsules like Soyuz, right before landing on land, they would have a you know a solid rocket booster or something just like to bring it down yep. from twenty miles an hour to near zero. Yes. In water, do you just land in the water at twenty miles an hour and it's not so bad? Nominally, yeah. And then you got crew attenuation seats and everything. I mean, then the structure. There was a whole integrated. I mean, this is years going back years and years ago when this was all figured out all the designers and analysts and design iteration after design iteration while all still meeting that mass by, you know, mass is, mass is king, you know, to safety first, but then mass. And so that whole optimization effort to ensure that water landing would indeed work after we went down that path. Can you talk a little bit about how the design from Orion evolved over time? Uh, you mentioned it's Apollo on steroids. Was that the initial intent or is that kind of the form it took and how have you seen the designs, you know, maybe go back and forth or evolve in your nine years with the program? Yeah, I think the latter that you mentioned there in terms of like kind of evolved towards that. I mean, obviously, like what you also indicate, you know, there's a lot of heritage there that you want to incorporate, you know, pyrotechnic wise and stuff like that. For instance, there's other things, but then you even try and evolve and improve upon those things. So we get kind of a redo is not the right thing, you know, since Apollo, a lot of times transpired since we went to the moon. I wasn't born. You guys weren't born. You know, so it, a lot has happened. Technology's changed. There's Moore's law, just computer-wise, and then also just material science-wise, and just the computing power we have these days. So yeah, the, we definitely geometrically, yes, what you see now, the capsule. That's what we exterior-wise. That's what it looks like. But the, like I said, the devil is in the details when you see all the technology that's packed into this thing. It's also what this is volume, habitable volume-wise. I think it's 50% more thereabout versus Apollo. I think over like 50% increase in diameter. So it's physically bigger too. Well, obviously, you know, physics doesn't change this aerodynamic shape for a capsule when you're doing a capsule reentry from the depths of space that we're doing. Um, you have no need for wings or anything like that. <laughs> Nothing fancy like that. This is the geometry that is most optimal um, mass and, and, and otherwise and safety wise for reentering this atmosphere. So then you were asking what other changes have occurred, right? Since Apollo, what the differences? Composite, so composite primary structure versus obviously the aluminum lithium that we have today. So that was something big, you know, engineering review board and stuff for, is that a possibility? I mean, obviously you got, as you guys probably are familiar, composites, you know, the strength of weight's good. And then, you know, there's pros and cons, right? You go down the list. But I think ultimately we found, you know, composites kind of leaky, you know, too. And so, I mean, ultimately when you weigh all those factors, we didn't go that way, right? Maybe in the future, someone could, technology will get better and we'll be able to, you know, 
have mitigations in place to maybe enable that. And, and then the launch abort system is another biggie. So that is actually a reverse flow from what Apollo did. So At this here, point in our conversation, you, you Dustin held up a scale right model of the Orion so spacecraft the, the and was pointing system. to the so launch abort tower at the top of the craft. Abort, you know, ascent abort, any of the aborts while you're going up to orbit, it'll save the crew. So what you've got here, basically the technology, the change I was talking about is this reverse flow right here. So if you were to look profile-wise at this versus the Apollo, Apollo would actually be taller. It'd be heavier and taller. Structurally, you'd need less power. By reversing the flow, you need less power, you need less mass. We more care about the mass, right? So this is actually lighter and more efficient. There's other factors as well why this design was better. Something you can't see in the internal guts of this is that the, the design for this actually uses a reverse flow, so you actually light the thing, it's firing the thrust up. Hmm. So obviously, mm -hmm. you know, Newton's F equals MA, so you're, you're actually firing up. So now you got to reverse that flow to make it useful, right, for our purposes of using the half million pounds of thrust once you light this thing, that's going in the right direction. And then there's a whole bunch of other things associated with that, but that was a big change and, and very innovative. So I guess I can explain the journey to Mars, because obviously Orion is a key portion of this. So science exploration technology. So you have these threads coming together, and basically we're going to Mars. I mean, I, I think everyone knows we're going to Mars. We have the capability not yet to go to Mars, but we have the, the vision and willpower, it seems, at this point in time to actually be on a trajectory to reach Mars in our lifetimes, and actually even sooner than that, the 2030s. So it's very exciting you know, to see that happen, especially with EFT-1, which we just did in 2014, where you know, we hadn't sent a man, it was an unmanned vehicle, but could be manned um, vehicle to that altitude distance from the Earth since 1972. So that's Pretty cool achievement that we were able to do that just two years ago. So what you can see here in this technology thread, so you got the low Earth orbit. The shuttle's been orbiting for over 40 you know, years when it was in operation. So, And then the International Space Station is still up there doing great science and stuff that will actually contribute to this technology thread in terms of the life sciences. So that all leads up to kind of the middle of this uh, technology thread, this path, this journey to Mars. We have a, a crewed Orion spacecraft. You got like a deep space habitat, which doesn't exist yet. And so you've got kind of everything before that middle portion is all either reality been flying for years or now Orion, which is now getting ready for going into main production and actually, you know, starting to fly these deeper space missions. Starting in 2018, which is only two short years away, going to the moon. And so what you can see here, then you got the space launch system, which again is going to be developed and then launch for the have its maiden voyage in 2018. And then you got all these asteroid near Earth asteroids that we're going to encounter um, using solar electric propulsion, and then ultimately getting out to the moons, Phoebus and Deimos of Mars, having a Mars transit habitat, and then obviously have some precursor missions, robotic, for instance, orbiters, landers, kind of learn where are the best places to land, the resources available, and then, you know, for ultimately in the 20, early 2030s, actually executing a manned mission. And what you can see there, the bomb, you got the Earth Reliant, the Proving Ground, which is where we're going to be in 2018 and then beyond, and then Earth Independent in like the late 2020s and then early 2030s when we actually are able to execute this mission. Let's break down uh, the anatomy of the vehicle. Well, you got the crew module, service module, the launch abort system. That goes bye-bye once you go, you know, once you're in orbit, right? You don't need that anymore. That's just extra mass to be hauling around. And then after the spacecraft adapter, and so got the crew module and service module. That, you know, that's your fuel, propulsion, electric, thermal control. You need that. Um, until you return back to Earth, and that's attached to the crew module, which is um, obviously where the crew will 
live in and have a habitat right for the duration of that mission and then the spacecraft adapter and jets and fairings those those all go away there's a like a teardrop shape typical when people think of space capsule they think of the crew module and that's pressurized habitable uh, by humans they can do their space activities operate the craft from there and then the service module that carries cargo fuel extra electronics power about how big is the habitable volume of the crew module I think I've heard an analogy for like, you know, you got your refrigerator, you can like climb in that. And so you've got, and that would be, and if you shared that volume of four other inhabitants, inhabitants, then you'd each have like, you know, a refrigerator size volume, I think, to share, which is actually luxurious compared to what Apollo, the Apollo guys had. <laughs> like I said, this has 50% more habitable volume at a minimum. So long story short, you're, you're still cramped, but not as cramped as you were during Apollo. But like I said, once you have a space habitat, you can, you know, have an, a small apartment type volume for them to live and, and, and do all the things that you got to do on their, their mission, their journey to Mars, for instance, will definitely need a space habitat. It's for emergency situations, and obviously when you transfer in and out of said vehicle, then that's, you know, and obviously reentry when you come back. You launch in that, you come back in that, so it's all the critical core pieces of a mission, you know, where things can go bad real quickly, so that's why this has to be the most reliable it's the longest lead item, too, that you have to start and why we've developed Orion first. Now, the space habitat and stuff, because you need that first. And it likes that's the cornerstone of setting up, enabling you to go to Mars with the whole mission. Now you have all this other stuff like space habs and other hardware to enable said mission to actually occur. So that's Great. all coming in the future and exciting work. We're going to need, you know, future engineers design like space habitat and all the other cool hardware we're going to need to literally go to Mars, which is every time I say it, it's. It's it's gonna happen. It's gonna be cool to be part of that journey. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you my resume after this. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, for those Mars missions, you mentioned the space habitat. Uh, what other components besides just Orion are needed? Uh, would all that fly on SLS or other launch vehicles? Uh, and then for I believe uh, the lunar missions, uh, is Orion self-contained? Is that all we need plus the rocket to get to the moon? There's. A whole bunch of possibilities for what's actually going to occur on EM2 when we actually have humans. We could have a number of things. You could even have a habitat out there, for instance, and then you could do a lot more science. You'd have a longer stay. you have, like, a semi-permanent station out there. So there's a lot of possibilities. And, and Orion's kind of the core piece that enables and a very flexible and evolvable piece that can fit into all these different mission architectures. Like, well, we have the capability. We're the workhorse that can fit into all these different, different mission architectures decayed by uh, you know, NASA, you know, President's Vision, Congress, the money they give us to actually execute said mission. And so that is where that, you know, Orion falls. But we don't, so yeah, you could have a habitat, for instance, you know, out there along with Orion, but we aren't going to be going to the surface of the moon. The moon. So by, by going to the moon, uh, TJ means like flyby. To get to cislunar orbit and do that flyby is all we need Orion and a rocket to send it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just saying in order to, because you want to pack as much science as you can to this, you could also have another, how do I say, so during Apollo, they, you know, made it up vehicles and stuff like that. You get, you get a lot of experience that we, things that we haven't actually executed in a long, long time, right? Like in, in lunar orbit, for instance. And so we want to be able to do those things if, if there's resources and, and time to do that. So that's, so yes, it's self-contained. But then there's other science missions and other knowledge we'd like to learn before we venture out further and get to that. We're Earth-reliant right now. We'd like to get to that more independent confidence level to, you know, venture out further, go the 60 million miles to Mars. So any learning opportunities we want to take advantage of. But no, yes, it's self-contained. You can just fly around and come right back. But we want to do as much science as we can. 
What's the process of the retrieval of the capsule after the various stages break off and the capsule is now in orbit around the moon and does its flyby? Once it's there, how? what's the process of it coming back? Obviously, you're, you're monitoring, you know where you are geospatially and stuff like that time-wise. And so you know when, you know, there's a bunch of model simulations, make sure you're, you're nominal and stuff. And so you know where you are and you know when you've executed your mission. And if everything's going nominally, then you can just, that planned flight path, you just, you know, continue that through. And then you start actually initiating the actuators to actually fire the rockets to then put you on that trajectory back to Earth, for instance, right? And so that's a real glossed over, simplified layman's way of putting it, but that's, you know, now you're ready to come back home, and now you, you're now on the trajectory back to Earth. So orbital mechanics kind of takes over, right? I mean, now you're ready to enter a particular corridor in the Earth's atmosphere when you get the three-day journey back, and then you're going to, you know, there's other corrections, actually a lot more corrections, and you actually see that during the EFT-1 video. Um, you'll see a bunch of RCS thrusters. So that thing's actually, you'll see it. I mean, it's, it's steering its way through the atmosphere. I mean, you think this, well, it has no wings. No, it's steering. You've got 20,000 mile per hour particles impinging upon this, you better believe you've got forces that you can, aerodynamic forces that you can use to your benefit if you know what you're doing. And so that will actually navigate it to, again, there's all these simulations and models going on in real time and making sure you're nominally correcting right to where that, you know, landing point is so the Navy can easily pick you up. Especially if you've got crew on board, you're going to want to be, have the most nominal mission you can in terms of where you end up. Uh, with commercial crew... Uh, another NASA program, ideally flying late 2017, early 2018. Uh, where do you see Orion's main goal? Is it mainly going to be uh, deep space missions like a moon station, or et cetera? Or do you also see some commercial crew applications? Or what? what is uh, the defining role for Orion in the next 5, 10 years? Short answer, deep space. We're ExoLeo. That's that's what we're focused on. That's what, you know, that's why this thing was designed and bred to do. And, and not just, you know, and like I said, it's flexible design, so it can fit many different mission architectures out to ExoLeo, Moon, Asteroids, Mars, even the, you know, Phoebos and Deimos, if need be, um, and, and then evolvable. As to, you know, as we know, technology progresses very quickly. So this is going to be like a 30-, 40-year program. The shuttle had upgrades. We're going to have upgrades, and, and we've designed it, you know, to have those proper interfaces where it makes it easy to, and, and affordable to upgrade, too. That's another key thing, affordability. So we've worked that and are still working that into this vehicle before we start going into full production. Do you see as part of those upgrades, like an expanded service module, letting Orion go farther, going to different places? Or is this going to be kind of the shape of Orion for the next 30 years and just upgrading systems? Well, as far as I know, this, what we're refining now, that's the core of it. But like I said, all the guts of it inside, you got a bubble, you got modular, you know, design in here. So you can upgrade, you know, as needed as technology improves. And, and obviously not just new technology, but it has to be space hardened and stuff like that. And so that is the core of it. Now, there obviously could be other modifications. Like you were saying, you can make this service module, you know, a supersized version of that and have more electric and propulsion, you know, capabilities. Now you get to the point where this is done, you know, when I say done, but it's still evolvable, can fit into many different architectures, but you have other hardware that you need to mate up with in order to reach more, you know, whatever your deep space destination is. So you would mate up with, you know, a space app, for instance, but, you know, name whatever component, whatever... You're, you know, and you tailor that architecture to whatever your destination and slash mission would be. So does that kind of make sense? So I would th say this is kind of a, that you've refined that. You you know, and so you don't really want to mess with that. You're, you would just attach another habitat. I would, you know, I like the modular approach. You've got that component done or module done. Then you would, you know, add a space hab, for instance. That just 
seems almost economical sense, but you could, someone could redesign that. They had a good enough reason. What kind of flight rate do you see with Orion? Uh, we saw EFT-1 in 2014, EM-1's in 2018, and EM-2 is in 2021. Uh, what do you see after we get the first manned test and Orion's operational? All right. So I'm not obviously at the high level playing all this and, and stuff, but my understanding is, I mean, that pace is going to pick up. And especially like if I get to that affordability thing, the more uh, launch rate goes up, the more affordable this becomes. And, and obviously the more that you're doing too. And so my understanding is that, you know, it's going to, that pace is going to pick up after 2021. So we launched the first crew, human crew, have a successful mission there. That pace is going to pick up like once a year, possibly twice a year. It depends on, you know, again, the mission laid out for us and the plan. Obviously, this can get the job done, fits in many architectures, but you still have a lot of long lead items. Pyrotechnics, for instance, are some of the longest. To have that hard work to do execute said mission, some of these things are um, you're going to, you know, just refurbish and, and reuse. Some things are just going to wholly, you know, change, deintegrate, and then reassemble. So you know what you're putting back together each time. But then there's, like you said, these mission-specific, when you got space hab and you're doing more than we've already done before, someone has to develop that. So you need the runway to do that. Do you see Orion uh, becoming reusable, partially reusable? Uh, SpaceX uh, is using the pressure vessels from old cargo dragons uh, upcoming for their, their new cargo missions. And for their crew capsule, wants to try to land it outside of the water, softly on land so they can try to rapidly reuse. Uh, do you see any like yeah. partial reusability? Because um, the cargo dragon lands in a very similar way as Orion does or Orion plans to do. So in terms of reuse, yeah, we obviously, again, to the affordability and production questions, uh, this has, you know, so we can keep launching these and it's affordable to keep doing launching and doing great science for the taxpayer. So we're going to reuse as much as we can. But salt water, that's a nasty thing when you when you land in that. So and SpaceX has found this out. Anyone else, they must didn't want to land in water, but, you know, he's driven to do that. And so for the time being, right. And so we and initially, like I indicated, I mean, I came on the program, I was going to be doing retro rockets because the only reason you're doing that necessarily is, do land landing, and that would have, you know, that reusability factor, you know, essentially now when this plunks down, you've you've got the the non-pressurized uh, portion of the vehicle, the Ford Bay, and, and the back shell. I mean, that's going to get, you know, water logged with salt water, and then, you know, all sorts of nasty things happen to metallic parts and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's just what you face. But you're going to try and reuse, you're going to evaluate, and you're going to see how much you're going to be able to reuse. But the primary structure, yes, that is planned to be reusable. So that's that's kind of my summary of it. I mean, yeah. and I'm not the reusable person, but I mean, I know for the parachutes, I mean, the shuttle reused their parachutes. They had a big washing machine. I've seen it in action before. And so, you know, you can actually reuse those up to a point. I mean, you obviously have to evaluate and, and assess just like SpaceX and any other company would do that's launching stuff in space and trying to reuse it. Yeah. So we're going to try and do as much as we can, but the primary structure for sure. So this is a more of a, a personal question uh, from uh, Drew, who's in the booth right now. Um, he wants to know, how does the politics of U.S. space operations affect um, you or Lockheed Martin as a contractor working with NASA? Well, I mean, obviously it has a big factor. I mean, of any of the jobs I could imagine having, having this is one of the ones that is most politically charged in terms of, I mean, you just want to focus and work on your, your cool spacecraft that's never been done before and go to places that never had humans set foot on before. But obviously politics is a big part because where do you get that funding? Obviously it takes like a nation um, at this point in time to actually enable that. In particular, only the U.S. is one, you know, kind of poised to do that along with other international partners to reach Mars. And I think, yeah, that was like your last question. So, yeah, the politics drives 
the vision and the budget. So the president traditionally sets that vision and the budget primarily, you know, Congress holds the purse strings. Yeah, you're you're beholden to that. And so you really don't have too much influence. I mean, go vote, <laughs> go talk, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's little that you can do and then there's lobbying and stuff like that. But I mean you're you're beholden to that. Ultimately whatever comes out of that political process drives your resources, your you know, that vision and then, you know, NASA then finally gets involved and then and then they can kind of, you know, dictate what that specific you know, take that vision and distill it down to direction for the contractors doing whatever, you know, commercial crew or Orion, which is doing XO Leos. As a as an employee of Lockheed Martin, how does that affect your work in particular, like day to day? Do you feel significant impacts or is it kind of just there in the background as you're working on the, you know, landing recovery systems? Well, it depends. I mean, if you have like the whole government shut down, that's not a good thing. And you'll quickly kind of get, and you got termination liability and all these, you know, terms that you've never even heard of before. You're just a kid straight out of college. And then, you know, because I actually was at 2007 and then 2010, February 1st, 2010, Constellation canceled. Like the president's budget, we got, you know, big old goose egg for our budget, right, for that next year. So that, that, that was changed real quick, right? And so that impacts you. And obviously personally and then professionally, like, okay, so straight out of college for the most part, had a few years under my belt. And now it's like, all right, what do I do? Because it seems like my whole program is going to be like just shut down. But then obviously Orion was, you know, saved. Um, Congress, you had strong support in Congress. And then, you know, we were able to not launch on this, but Delta Four Heavy, we were able to prove EFT-1, you know, was worth its weight. Um, and in all the, you know, research and development and design that went into it and that it, it does have a purpose, a vision, and, and something that, you know, we can achieve great things with it. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely does have a big impact. And and then there's other things that can be delayed. You know, if your budget keeps getting trimmed down, down, you know, for whatever program, not even just necessarily ours. Ours has been pretty stable recently as of late, which is good with the strong congressional support we've got right now for what we're trying to achieve. But, uh, I mean, over time that can kind of kind of dry things. I mean, right? I mean, you, you're going to you got cost technical schedule. And if you're only got so many resources coming in, something's got to give, right? You've just got to keep paring that down. Always trying to keep safety as a top priority. Eventually your program could just not take that pressure anymore. I mean, eventually you can't run on, on you know, <laughs> a budget of zero. So if they keep paring it down, you're beholden to that and you do what you can. But so hopefully, you know, Orion's been stable. And so, and, and I think, you know, it looks optimistic at this point in time relative to our project. So, yeah, we're beholden to politics. That's the answer to Drew's question in the, in the booth. I mean, yeah, you're very much beholden to that. You, and, and the day-to-day, -day, I think, was the other portion of the question. You really don't, I mean, even P2B project, I mean, you got stuff going on. Orion, you kind of keep focused in, you know, you don't block out everything political or, uh, you know, or just other things going on. But you, you're aware of it, but you just try and keep focused on, you know, the thing, your day-to-day -day job. So I, I would say the day-to-day -day stuff isn't as much affected. I mean, me personally, I, yeah, yeah. I got to get it done, you know, and keeping the program sold is by performing. So that's that's your way out. Right. And so and then go home and see the wife and kids. So, <laughs> you know, and, and so it's and it's a work life balance. And, you know, it's in the end, we're doing something that's never been done before. So that's also rewarding. So you just, you, you know, you're tough. You get through it and life goes on. All of us, we're we're students at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and we're obviously interested in space. Um, as someone who got into the space industry right out of college and have been in it for almost a decade now, um, do you have any words you'd like to uh, leave us with in terms of getting more involved and being active participants in the space community? 
the, the short version is, yeah, pursue your passion. And then if your passion leads you to actually working on it or, you know, actually flying on it, you know, there's career paths to do that. There's, you know, get a particular education, get your PhD or whatever you want to, you know, and, and be a military pilot would help too if you want to be an astronaut. <laughs> you know, there's other ways of doing it. But then, you know, the, the path I'm on currently right now, I mean, yeah, I got, I was very interested. I was the kid, you know, using up all the Legos so my three younger brothers can build little spaceships and stuff like that. So then that transpired to go into the library and like, oh, and then once the internet took off, like I could access everything there is about physics and cosmology and stuff like that. And so I was hooked at an early age. And then you just, obviously you do the formal education that you guys are going through right now. And then luckily for me, Lockheed Martin won the, the was a prime contractor and was that was awarded in 2000, end of 2006. I was getting ready to graduate, and so it all kind of lined up. The point being, you're looking for, you know, co-ops or internships, and then, you know, ultimately that job, and in particular, you guys seem like you're interested in, like, space industry. And so, like I said, when you get those opportunities, and I didn't get many, but I definitely held on to the one I got in terms of interview opportunities and spoke my passion, you know. Just, I mean, you can't really go wrong when you, when you do that. And obviously have... You know, you guys have the interests, you've got your hobbies, you're doing this, you know, podcasts and stuff like that for you guys personally. And then there's other people in your audience that are probably doing, you know, Model Rocketry Club and other things. I do a lot of STEM outreach. This is just one example of it. And so that's something that, you know, more recently I've been able to get a hold of, you know, become a part of. But that just drives my passion to keep doing what I do on a daily basis. But then also encourage all you guys, hey, this is the path, this is what worked for me. And I'm, you know, I'm enjoying life. I'm doing something really cool that, uh, you know, my kids will be proud of. And so, but again, that aligns with my passion. So follow your passion and it, you can't really go wrong. Um, and obviously, you know, back it up with get a proper education and stuff like that and do all those hobbies because it's not just theory, but also practice, you know. So it's, it's a combination of both that'll make you a strong candidate um, for, you know, those career opportunities that come along. Well, I just wanted to say thanks for speaking with us. Uh, we're SpexCast from RIT Space Exploration uh, speaking with Dustin Neal from uh, Lockheed Martin, who is an engineer working on the Orion spacecraft. Um, thanks a lot, Dustin. Thanks a lot to Mike for helping us set this up. And um, let's get to Mars. Let's do it. Let's go. Absolutely. <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> okay, thank All you right, very thank much. Thank you guys for your time. You've been listening to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. And today we talked to Dustin Neal. He's an engineer with the Orion spacecraft from Lockheed Martin, which is part of NASA's Journey to Mars. And this awesome theme music you're listening to was made by our good friend Nelson Scott. You can check out more of his music at soundcloud.com slash thenelsonscott. And of course, we extend a huge thank you to every one of you, our listeners. And what you think about the show means a lot to us. So feel free to send an email to specscast at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter at RITSpecs. Apologies for the weird release schedule, but we do have some amazing things lined up for you, including a few interviews with NASA scientists from Goddard Space Flight Center and some interviews with some brilliant people in new space and some more commentary from us here at SpexCast. So once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. You're listening to SpexCast.